Hey, welcome back to Mobile First. I'm your host, Jordan Bryant. Every week, I sit down with industry leaders to unlock how they are creating effective mobile experiences that make an impact for their businesses so that you can understand the perspective and tactics to replicate their success. If you're new to the show, Mobile First is the media child of Emerge Interactive, a digital experience company with two decades of creating highly performing digital products out of Portland, Oregon. We believe that every digital product owner deserves a clear vision, plan of action, and the right capabilities to create effective digital experiences that help to increase sales and performance. This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Charlie Cole, Chief Digital Officer of Toomey. And I think there's something to be said as a bit of an allegory there, which is unless you're like forced into kind of a desperate and really challenging situation, you probably don't know what you're capable of. Charlie Cole joined Toomey in 2015 as the company's chief digital officer. In his role, Mr. Cole is responsible for overseeing and developing the brand's national and international e-commerce and digital platforms. Since Samsonite's acquisition of Toomey in 2016, Charlie has also taken the role of global chief e-commerce officer for Samsonite Corporation, which includes oversight of global strategy for brands such as Samsonite, American Tourister, Hartman, Gregory, High Sierra, and others. Mr. Cole brings a mix of entrepreneurial and institutional knowledge to the company with the success in both fields and a focus of creating structures to empower creativity driven by energy and objectivity. Prior to joining Toomey, Mr. Cole held various leadership positions, including serving as CEO of The Line and head of e-commerce for Lucky Brand and Shift Nutrition, the largest acquisition of VMS company in the history of Wall Street. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Really excited to have you here. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to figure out how to do this because it was certainly my schedule was pain in the ass. So glad to be here. Yeah. I mean, in, in just the, the pre-show chat and the ramp up to get here, we've had some amazing conversations. So I think we're going to have some awesome stuff to talk about today. Before diving into this insight, though, I'd like to spend just a little time understanding your perspective and what inspires you, Charlie. So because I think this really helps to provide some context when digging a little bit deeper through the episode. So what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? I think the thing that gets me the most excited is when you force or, or maybe forces a little bit of a draconian term, when you enable people who think very differently to align on solving a problem. And for me, I worked in fashion or, or the premium retail space now for some time. And those teams are only as good as the ability to get people who think very creatively and people who think very technically and people who think analytically. So the very best teams have this unique way of getting the best out of each other while still in, encouraging those divergent ideas. And for me, being the person in the center of that dynamic and helping draw those functional areas of expertise without compromising the other areas is, I think, what, what gets me the most excited on a day-to-day basis. What caused that? What inspired that for you? Because that's a, that's a pretty interesting perspective, and it seems like you've had to experience quite a bit to get to that perspective. So what are some of the pivotal things that allowed you to get there? Failure, to be honest. To be the, the spoke in that wheel that was not allowing that, that conversation to happen. My background started in numbers. You know, The thing I was always good at was numbers and analytics, and I could figure out how to dissect any situation numerically and come up with the best thing to do numerically. And 
I also was a fairly type A personality. And so that can be a really dangerous combination. And when you're young and, and cocky on top of it, then I can look back at my career and think about a lot of specific instances when I was the problem that didn't allow for that dynamic to develop. And, and that's kind of where I realized early on through some screw ups and, and through some really great mentors that that didn't work, right? That if you just try to overpower any situation with one functional area of expertise, in this case, analytics, you're not going to arrive at the best answer. And for me, I think that those kind of early failures is sort of what gets me excited about it now and makes me think about it a little bit more. So it sounds like that arrogancy drove you and then broke you and then it humbled you. And then it sounds like you got mentors. And that's just such an awesome path. That's some, something I can personally relate to quite a bit. And so how has your background now influenced the approach that you, you take now with your teams? One of the things I always try to encourage people is never abandon that, that functional expertise, right? So if you were to strip down all the layers of management, right? So right now you, you might be a president, you might be a vice president, like forget all that. And if you had to do one thing from a functional of expertise, what would it be? And would you be a coder? Would you be a design graphic designer? Would you be a product designer? Would you be an analyst? And, and in my case, I, I certainly would be an analyst and I'm not ashamed of that. That analysis capability enabled me to become a pretty damn good media buyer, which enabled me to be a pretty damn good marketer. But ultimately, you strip all those layers off and, and I'm an analyst. And so I think that my background is that's what enabled me to, to excel early on in, in my career, right? And I ended up at a realestate.com, which was doing the majority of its advertising via TV and print. And, and the analysis capability allowed me to have a very loud point of view about like, look, we should be embracing this digital ecosystem that's emerging around Google AdWords. And that allows us to do localized targetings and blah, 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 blah. And then that allowed me to then go and really start in the advertising agency world. And I, and I was a part of a team that built one of the first integrated agencies that was then sold. And it was a great result. But that's where the sort of pivot in my career happened, right? And, and I went from a, let's just say, dot-com startup environment to a direct response advertising agency environment, which have, I would say, more similarities and differences to Lucky Brand Jeans, which any good fashion company, I think, needs to be creative and merchandising first, right? Especially when you're creating the product. And that was where my sort of baptism really happened in learning that not everybody on earth thought like me. Because when you're at a direct response agency or when you're at a dot-com, most of the people around you come from that similar functional area of expertise. But now I'm thrown in this world of people that know how to source denim from around the world and people know how to sew it and people that know how to design tapers and legs and people that know how to visually merchandise it. And I was just a bit of a fish out of water. And I think that the important part of that kind of process in my life was that I'm not sure I could have come out as well as I did on the other side if I didn't at least embrace the fact that failure was an outcome that was not acceptable, but that you could learn from. And that was kind of where, when I made that next hop, I, I always refer to Lucky Brand as very affectionately as the only job I ever quit. But in reality, by the, by the time I quit, 
I had really sort of alienated a lot of the organization because I refused to listen to anything but numbers. And the fact of the matter is in that world, emotion matters and creative energy really matters and merchandising really, really, really matters. It was an important learning curve for me. And so when I got to my next job, I think it took me a while to, to, to kind of accept it, but I had a leader there that was very, very clear in embracing my own expertise and my own things that I excel at, while also instead of creating tension, he encouraged me to learn and accept what I wasn't good at. And, and I think that that's sort of a really good process for anyone to go through as they're developing their own leadership style. And I was just really lucky to find the right person at the right time at the job I had after what I consider my, my biggest failure. And so now in, in taking this, this perspective and this approach, you found your way to Toomey. And so for those who may not know what Toomey is, can you give us a quick description of who you guys are and what you do? Yeah. So Toomey, we make the best travel products in the world. Right. And so one of the things that we always say it to me is, is that it's kind of our job to help you perfect your journey. And whether that journey is across the world and you need luggage or a duffel bag or whether that journey is from your house to the subway to your office and, and you need the perfect day bag, we're going to make products across that ecosystem that help you perfect your journey. So if we're being very self-aware, we're known for our luggage products. But our fastest growing segment is we make some amazing women's and men's backpacks. We make electronics such as chargers and things that help you keep track of your, your bag when it's when it's underneath the belly of the plane or, or worst case scenario, not underneath the belly of the plane you thought it was. And so that's kind of what Toomey does. We, we're one of the leaders in, in premium travel products around the world. Yeah, and I'm really excited to dig in some of the growth that you've, that you've had recently and where you're going. I think to help better understand that and where you sit, because it was acquired by Samsonite a couple of years ago, and, and you have now a couple of roles. You have a role within Samsonite, but as chief digital officer for Toomey, what are some of your responsibilities there and what does your immediate team do? So if it's Toomey and a digital ecosystem, our team has something to do with it, right? So that pertains to online merchandising, technology, operations, marketing, and also wholesale, right? So when you see us on Amazon, that's part of my team as well. And there's a lot of compliments to that, right? So we have a brand marketing team, right? And our digital marketing team and our brand marketing team, they're tied at the hip, right? And we have a product management team who really kind of oversee the product strategy. And we have a creative director who oversees like the initial creative of each product. They're really tied at the hip with what we do with online merchandising. So I don't want to overstate what our team controls, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but to, to put it simply, and I don't think it's it's an overstatement, if, if you're touching to me the brand in a digital sphere, then we're probably at the nexus of that interaction. That's really helpful to understand some of those interdependencies there and, and how you have to then work collaboratively, because I think a lot of companies can't necessarily work that collaboratively and have some of these silos in place, but then how you break down these silos and, and create that, that co-creation process that allows you to transform and then have the results that you've been having. So with that context, two years ago, Toomey's digital business was shrinking. Margins were getting worse. And now it's growing, what you mentioned, 32% annually with better margins. So can you explain the progression, You know what happened two years ago and what changes you've made to get to where you are today? Yeah. And if someone's heard me present or, or talk about this before, it might be a little bit redundant for some, but I do think it's formative because frankly, I think it's a place that a lot of brands find themselves in, if not two years ago, then even now. So 
one of the things that the internet enabled was the ability to sell stuff at a discount easier than we'd ever seen before. And it's one of those things that unless you stop and think about it, like I don't think we can really appreciate how easy it is compared to what it was. Think about yourself as a store manager or a merchant who owns a physical store. If you want to mark down a product, or more importantly, if you want to mark down like a collection, that means you're on the floor replacing tags. And then you have to make sure those tags correspond to a backend system. And then you have to make sure that your store associates are aware the products are on markdown. And then you have to make sure that your signage is updated. And then you might want to make sure that you have inventory. I mean, it was just this amazing manual process that you had to go through to do something that now in the world of the internet, I go and I click a button and the backend website and now we go, right? And so with that, it's also one of, if not the most effective ways to sell stuff, right? And so I think we can romance a lot of things that are happening in the retail world today, the balance of content and commerce and how are we leveraging machine learning? But look, like every survey you read from any consulting agency, whatever, and ask consumers like, hey, what, what is the thing that finally is the catalyst to you purchasing? A lot of times you'll see it's, it's a discount, right? So we don't want to publicize that, but I think it's important that we're, we're honest with ourselves and, and that it becomes this drug. And that's where I think Toomey was, is, is Toomey was at this point where growth was at such a premium it became so easy to say like, well, we got to make another million bucks. Well, let's just mark down the website 20%. And frankly, I saw it happen at Lucky Brand before that. And I say frequently that the streets are littered with examples of this. Look, I'm mudslinging when I say, well, you got Kate Spade, Coach, J. Crew, Michael Kors, Ralph Lauren. I mean, these are all major brands that have publicly come out and to their shareholders said, you know what? We let it get away from us. We became too promotional. And that is such a dangerous thing because in a world of Amazon, where Amazon's mission, it seems like in life, is to commoditize everything. If you are a premium brand, kind of one of the only things you have is your ability to command a higher price point through differentiation. And if you let that stratification of pricing fall and you fall to the mean, let's say, then well, how are you different? Like, do you have any heritage? Do you have any material story? Do you have any patents? Do you have any of these things that differentiate? And, and Tumi had all these things and, and they have just gotten on that drug of promotions. And so in 2015, what inevitably happens to any business is you grow and you discount and you grow and you discount and you grow and you discount. And then one day you discount and the growth isn't there anymore. And now you're in deep, deep trouble, right? And that's where Toomey was, where one more promotion was not the answer. And one more promotion, you have now degraded your margins by six to 8% over the trailing three years. Um, that's a scary position for a brand to be in. And that's where we were with Toomey. And, and we kind of went on this two-year journey that now... I can tell you, Jordan, that like I keep on freaking out because I have nothing to freak out about, right? And, and it's just kind of like this really weird thing. I was telling my boss like two weeks ago that I had an absolute meltdown when I was in Asia and it was like the middle of the night and I was jet lagged and I decided I need to basically 
bifurcate my business into like the lowest common denominator to make sure that something had to be wrong. So I did what I always do and I analyze it down to like the amino acid level and I got done and everything was fine, (laughs) (laughs) which which was a pretty rewarding, albeit extraneous experience. And so now, you know, two years later, we look at the business and I think there's a bunch of things that we did. And for us, this is going to sound somewhat, I don't know, cliche, but the first thing we had to do is we did have this 30, 40 years of heritage, which meant we have 30, 40 years of of customer data. And, And I don't want to bastardize the term data there. I mean, like, actual firsthand accounts of what mattered to our consumers that made us special in their heart in the first place that made them willing to spend $600 on a piece of luggage. You know, and that's where we started is, is we organized that and we understood those consumers. And then we kind of got the ball rolling the hill downhill down there. And, and ultimately what that allowed us to do is figured out what mattered to our consumers besides price. Right, like what could we do to command the brand loyalty and the brand premium that we typically get? And that's kind of where that journey started. And when I look back at it, there was a lot of twists and turns to, to get to where we are today. And so I just want to reiterate that point because I think that's really, really important. So you took a look at the the data, which you had a ton of, you said 34 years or 30 to 40 years? Uh, 30 to 40. 30 yeah, to 40 years. I think it's 40. I, I didn't want to put an exact term out there because I feel like I'm for sure going to be wrong. The higher end of 30 to 40? And, yeah, let's go with that. Let's okay. With that. And then you return to the roots of that customer data, right? What drove the brand value from the beginning and caused the momentum that turned into what it was today before it had that the downward shift so that you could start to incorporate some of that that thinking and that ideology into this digital shift that was taking place. And then from that point, let's unpack that a little bit. So we had discussed at the beginning there this attribution story and how you're gaining this information and this data from users. And now you have these various mobile touch points and the ability to harvest data through different mobile experiences. So tell us a little bit more about what you did to understand this, this data from the customers. Yeah, so I think that we were in this position, and I don't mean to keep on making it sound like all retailers are the same, but I, I do think we share a lot of common problems where we had a lot of disparate data sets, right? You have a wholesale business, which is some level of sales data and you have a retail business which is some level of sales data and you have an outlet business which is some level of sales data and for us our single most important or or i don't want to say important that sounds a little too highfalutin but our largest single point of sales is toomey.com and once you get past sales data which i think maybe two years ago maybe even now for some people when some people think of the phrase customer data they immediately jump to sales data. And I think that is where the first mistake you make is. Because all the things that we have access to, we have warranty and repair data. We have Google Analytics, email send open click, uh, customer service, social graph data. We have the ability to cross-reference those things to create algorithms that say, here's your likelihood to transact. There had been no combination of that data. And so we did not have a complete picture of our customer. All we had was a picture of the end of our customer journey. And that's where you start to make this pivot to, okay, what role is mobile going to play in 
how the customer interacts with our brand. And this is where I think I hesitate to say this on a, on a mobile podcast, but this dose of reality, I think, is really important. And one of the things, Jordan, when you and I were talking about the show ahead of time, and, and I would ask to everybody listening, what percentage of the people in the United States, and that's an important distinction, the United States, because this is not true around the world, but I think this is true in the United States. What percentage of people have bought something, actually transacted in a physical good for something that cost over $500? And I think the reality is that not a lot of people, even in a mobile-centric audience like, like yours, can look you in the eyes and say, yeah, I, I've done that. We might have made a hotel reservation. We might have made a restaurant reservation. We might have viewed product, but actually signed on the dotted line and bought something for $500 online. I think we'd all agree it's a very small percentage of the population. And virtually every e-commerce site on earth has a lower conversion rate for mobile than it does on desktop. Again, not as true in China, Korea, Japan, where the mobile transaction, actually Africa, uh, the mobile transaction is, is very large as well. But when we started thinking about that customer journey, that's where we really started thinking about what role does mobile need to play in this process? That's probably something that we could dive into for days, but we sort of delineated into three, four areas. Number one, messaging. Right, like messaging was really important that people were accessing emails, our social pages, uh, and then obviously the website itself. And, and we needed to make sure that messaging was relevant to their device. And that becomes a design problem. And then number two, time series. I think in a mobile case, you start to browse your mobile phone in a very different phase than when you're on your desktop transacting. You could be on the bus or the subway and you're just kind of browsing, right? And, and there's something about that word browsing that I think is going to have some reaction to everybody listening to this. It just implies a different stage of your buying cycle. And we need to embrace that. And we need to understand that and make sure that we were providing the relevant information at that stage, as opposed to driving the transaction down the consumer's throat. And that was a really important distinction between the mobile experience and the, and the desktop experience. And then finally, on the third side, Performance in mobile is just so bloody important. I mean, I'm sure you could go online and Google mobile site speed conversion rate, and you'll hear a thousand, a thousand studies about the correlation between if you have good mobile performance, you have a better chance at converting the customer. We were a disaster, right? I, I don't mind admitting the Tumi.com, and I still don't think we're best in class. I still think it's an area that we focus on, but we had to really understand that all these beautiful images and videos and things that we take so much pride in on the creative side of the business, which don't get me wrong, fundamentally imperative to any premium brand. We had to find the happy medium between those pieces of content and their effects, sometimes negative effect on performance, which becomes heightened in that mobile ecosystem. So I think we could dive into kind of those three things, this idea of messaging, attribution, and performance and usability that, that I really think kind of summed up the three things we've focused on for the last two years to kind of get to the results that, that we have today. And so just being mindful of the time here and wanting to get really deep for some tangible takeaways of these three, which, which do you think is kind of like the 80-20? Which one do you think you think correlated to the biggest impact? Attribution for sure, right? Because I mean, one of the biggest challenges that any e-commerce provider has is cross-device attribution, right? Which is the majority of the analytical tools that we're all using today. If you browse Tumi.com in on a mobile phone, on a desktop and on a, on a tablet, the inherent setting, if you will, 
is that's three different customers, right? Or three different user IDs or three different cookies or whatever you want to call the identifier. So we had to figure out a way to kind of understand who that customer is cross device. And we've done that in a variety of ways based on that same holistic data set that I talked about before. And I don't pretend to tell you, Jordan, that we're perfect and we have it all figured out. But the fact of the matter is, there's basically three companies on the face of this earth that can do that perfectly. It's pretty much Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And the reason for that is for you, for me, for probably everyone listening to this, right now we probably have those three companies running passively on our mobile phone 24 hours a day, right? That's not realistic for Tumi, right? Like I'd love to romance you and tell you that Tumi built a mobile application and that people are accessing that mobile application every day. But I don't think that's true for more than a handful of retailers on earth. And those handful of retailers that are on earth are multi-brand or they're having to do with some other offline product. That's just not a realistic ask for us. So we had to nail that attribution journey because we are such a considered purchase. So that would certainly be my 80%. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that makes complete sense. They're digitally native. Most consumer good brands are going from brick to click, trying to figure out how to catch up to that attribution. Uh, having this focus of attribution, what are some of the, the key formulas or connections and things that you are making that you saw correlated to the better understanding of that holistic picture of the customer? So I think the idea of balancing device, marketing medium, and number of visits is sort of like the start of that tincture, right? Because Every one of those three things needs to be understand in correlation to, to use the, the term that you use, I thought, very aptly. So let me give you kind of a use case of, of that in practice. If somebody accesses a unbranded organic link on a mobile phone and it's their first visit to me.com, they need a fundamentally different experience than if somebody accesses a to me email on a desktop and it's their sixth visit to Tumi.com. You have already told me so much about that consumer. That first visit has to be about education and romance and about telling you who we are and what makes us different and what services we offer. And it's actually a much harder usability challenge, in my opinion, because what does the word Tumi mean? Well, the Tumi is a Peruvian word. It doesn't mean anything to an English speaker. So I, I literally haven't told you anything. Something about my organic listing or something about my meta tags or my title tags caused you to go ahead and click on that ad, God bless you, right? Or click on that organic link. And, and you know, we say, or I'm looking at our title tag right now, shop for luggage at the official Toomey site. We can browse all of our world-class business and travel products, including bags, wallets, and test accessories. That's all I know about you. <laughs> That's it. And so... That usability challenge, when you heighten it to the fact that you're working on a four-inch, a six-inch screen, it becomes that much more of a challenge. And that balance of how many visits, what device you're on, and how you get to the website, I think that's where you start this attribution challenge and attribution journey and design into it. Because once you design into it, you'll start to be able to really excel to a point that you can personalize each experience in a way that lends credence that you understand where somebody is in their journey. Yeah. So we're several layers deep now. So I want to make sure that we can take a step back and reiterate some of these things, because I think that there's some really great stuff here and this was not a, a thing that happened overnight. And so really understanding the steps that had to be taken to get here. So, you know, digging into this core nugget that you just gave us. So the bigger formula that 
led to a lot of the the success here, understanding first the device, the marketing medium, and then that visit. And then from that, you can obviously segment and then well, first understand from the insight that, that it's creating from connecting those mediums and then getting the understanding and then segmenting and then personalizing. And then there it just gets into different ways and deeper ways to connect and deliver to your users. But before getting to that, taking a step back, you had those three core buckets, the messaging, the uh, attribution, the performance, that being derived from understanding the bigger journey or wanting to understand the bigger journey, the customer journey. And that came from looking into the customer data and realizing that most of it was toward the end of the customer journey. And that came from looking at Tumi.com, realizing there was kind of the 80-20 rule of where you're making those the biggest conversions. And that came from returning to the roots of that customer data and, and really understanding where that's all coming from. If I was to kind of sum up what not to do, most people define their usability based on their last click data that they get for Google Analytics. And that's probably the dumbest thing that you can do if you just take a step back and get out of your own way. Because the way I always say this to people is imagine if all you knew about someone is it's the first time, it's the first time they've ever heard of the brand Aston Martin or Mercedes or all these brands that it's very easy for us to kind of immediately synonymize them with premium and luxury. What would you do if that's all you knew, right? All you knew is that they have never heard of your brand before and now they're walking into your dealership for the first time. Would you immediately like hand them a lease? No. Yet all the time in an e-commerce ecosystem, that's what we do, right? We give them buy now buttons and we show them pre promos and we offer them 10% off if they buy today, but they don't know who the hell you are. And that's the thing that I think from a mobile challenge, from a mobile usability, typically those initial visits are more likely to be mobile than not, at least for us. And I believe that's becoming more and more true on the internet across the board. So how do you create a design practice and a usability practice and a content practice to pay homage to the fact you haven't earned that customer's sale yet. So don't act like it. And that's what we really had to think about as a brand that um, I'm, I'm really very proud of. Oh, I love that. Earning that customer sale. Love that. And so with where you're at now, I mean, you have awesome growth growing 32% year after year. You had mentioned you had kind of a panic attack when it's like, oh crap, what do I focus on to improve? So I guess where, where are you at right now? You know, what is holding you back from reaching that next level, from breaking the threshold you're currently at? So I still think we're just scratching the surface on, on this idea of personalization. And I, and I hesitate, Jordan, to continue to use the word personalization because I think it's one of those words that our industry has done its damnedest to make mean nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We have this amazing ability to take words that had a deeper meaning and then use them so much that they basically cease to have any meaning like <laughs> omni-channel or, or hell, you know, usability, which I've used a couple of times myself. But there is a limiting factor here, right? Which I, I don't want to just keep on talking from a point of academics without making sure I illustrate the challenge. Personalization is a remarkable creative challenge, right? So let's just think about it. Let's say you want to divide men and women new versus returning visitors, luggage versus backpacks, and East Coast versus West Coast. Well, there's 16 versions of creative that you need. 
that's a big ask. Mm -hmm. Like, how often are you going to do that? How often are you going to change weekly, monthly, daily, by the hour, even let computers do it all? How do you balance the need to let computers do it to limit effort without screwing up your brand point of view, which is a premium brand, I think is important. So I I couldn't look you in the eye and tell you that we have that figured out yet. And, And that's that area where your first question, what do I enjoy the most? Finding the right balance there is, I think, something that we have all the right team members. Like I, I'm, I am just infinitely lucky with my brand marketing partner Heather, my creative director Victor, my head of merchandising Gene. They are all ready and willing to kind of embrace this journey of being as relevant as possible to consumers and embracing the digital and mobile mediums. That said, they also continue to have a very strong point of view from their areas of functional expertise. And one thing that we're not allowed to do as the digital team. We can't screw up their vision, right? And that's a very important thing. And it goes back to that aforementioned arrogance that I had when I was younger. I used to think that digital was the thing. No, no, no. Digital empowers the thing. And for us, if we don't have great product and we don't have a great brand, I could have the greatest freaking website in the world. That's not going to matter. So that, that sort of balance, I think, is where we've gotten so much better. But it's exciting to think about where we could go as we continue to work together and kind of continue to unlock these kind of processes and discussions that just push that push that barrier out even farther. Do you think that there's one thing or maybe an advancement in technology that will help you figure that out and, and kind of tighten that up? Advancement in technology is an interesting way of putting it because look, like, let's just kind of get on our future ship here for a second and be a little ridiculous. But I, I think one thing that you can never be is too ridiculous as it pertains to what the future is capable of. Short of the ability of artificial intelligence to literally become a graphic designer, right? And to get into Photoshop and create assets that Heather and Victor thought was awesome. No, right? Like, and this is where I think digital people and mobile people, and I'm using the word people a little bit grossly, like (laughs) maybe I mean like technologists, maybe I mean analysts. We forget about the fact that I don't know if when we're all 300 years dead, if there's going to be portraits drawn by computers hanging up in whatever MoMA looks like then. You know what I mean? Like generative creative is really hard. And the fact of the matter is generative creative doesn't exist from a computer yet. It doesn't exist from a technology perspective. You look at what artificial intelligence has done and you look at the Google DeepMind project winning the game Go, all it did was learn the 10 to the 172nd permutations that were available in the game and learn how to optimize them. But it didn't start from square one, right? It needed rules. It needed an understanding of like what's on the board. But the fact of the matter is like, when I look at Victor, like I'll walk into a room and Victor will just be sketching and he'll be feeding off his years of experience of creating these beautiful products and these beautiful, this beautiful imagery I'm not sure that's something that technology is close to replacing yet. And and that might be a bit of an unpopular answer, Jordan, on a mobile podcast. But I think it's something that's important that we never forget that there is such thing as as generative creative. That's really interesting. I mean, just in asking the question where you jumped, it's not yet having the ability to create, and I wrote some words down here, customized, contextual, dynamic experiences from that creative side. Yeah. Iteration is the easy part, right? So technology has given us an unbelievable ability to iterate, right? So I'll give you a a real great example. 
Facebook is an advertising medium that responds very well to rapid iteration and optimization, more so than any medium I've personally ever seen from a digital advertising perspective. So what we do is we work with our creative team to create, and, and I'm hyper simplifying this, but I think it'll articulate the point. Give me five images, give me five videos, give me five text calls to action, and give me five landing pages, okay? So now I have five times five times five times five permutations, which let's see, five times five is 25, 25 times five is 125, 125 times five is 725. So now I have 725 permutations that I can throw at Facebook and let a machine rapidly iterate. You know what I mean? That's a great example, but I know everything I just threw at the machine is brand appropriate. And I, I think I screwed up my math. I think it's actually 625, but you get my point. You know, and that's where I think everything we do, once we have that generative creative at the start, iteration and optimization is becoming so great and testing tools become so great. But the thing that I think we can't replace right now, and, and frankly, what makes Toomey special is the brilliant creative minds we have at that, that step one nexus. And I think the question you've been posed, maybe you realize it or not, is is that even truly personalized? Because of those 625 variations, does it take into consideration? So the best one, is it actually fit for that individual that lands on that page? Is it comp I love that. In that itself, I think Jordan is a better articulation than what I did when I talk about like, how do we keep getting better? It's finding that unbelievable center point of creative and technology that allows us to be as relevant as possible. And I have no doubt that you and I could rip open my Google Analytics and I could basically show you how we've become more relevant in the form of time on site, pages per session, mobile conversion, mobile time on site, like for like, new visitors versus old visitors. I have no doubt that I could prove it to you. But I also think that you and I could hop on Facebook, look at our past 12 homepages and say, well, you know, I think that could have been better. And I think it could have been more relevant, which is frankly what, what I think keeps us all going. So... Charlie, where should we go to, to keep tabs then on some of these improvements and things that are that you're taking place over there? We obviously are always updating the site. I would absolutely positively love if anybody listening to this went to Toomey.com, emailed me at charlie.cole at Toomey.com and told me how we sucked. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know because look, the, the fact of the matter is, is we're all consumers and the hardest part about the internet is we're all experts and we're all experts because we all have a browser and we all have the means to browse it. But, but for me... I continue to try to stay active in our in our world, and, and I'm always around. I'm presenting at Shop Talk in March of next year in Las Vegas, which I'm really excited about. Which is one of the larger conferences in kind of our our environment or our community, depending on what you want to call it. But look, one of the things I pride myself on being is a relatively open networker. And when I say relatively, usually when I volunteer, when I'm about to volunteer, I get a deluge of sales calls. So look be relevant to me and, and, and I'll articulate and I'll try to respond to everything. I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn and, and I gave my email address out. Like I'm always happy to riff on this stuff with people who actually have a genuine interest as opposed to an ulterior motive just to try to sell me shit. Well, there you go. He's uh, challenged you here to reach out to him and tell him how his website sucks and his, <laughs> his email and his LinkedIn profile will be in the show notes for direct access to that. Also, make sure to tune in this Friday for a rapid fire round where Charlie's going to be sharing some of his most valuable resources. Well, Charlie, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing a lot of the resources that, that have helped you 
get to where you are today, as well as being really transparent in the journey that's gotten you here. And I think we got some really amazing takeaways of what happened with Toomey.com and and how you were able to really turn the ship around and get it to where it is, to where now it's full sails ahead on the bow. So again, thank you for the time. Yeah, my pleasure, Jordan. And really, people don't take my offer at face value. Like, I mean, we, Jordan and I joked before this that we could go on for three hours, but we we have to kind of keep it somewhat brief. But please do reach out if you have specific questions. I'm happy to get far more tactical than, than time allowed today. Hey, thank you for listening. For additional resources on how to increase sales and performance with your mobile experiences, head over to www.emergemobilefirst.com and select the Get Free Resources button there at the top and gain instant exclusive access to tools and resources from all of our guests aggregated into one single place just for you. Now, I'm looking forward to digging in with my next guest, but until next time, think mobile first. Thank you.